Hi, my name's Sarah, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 11, 1 to 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The Word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Julie. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 8:26 26 to 30. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Hannah. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 1, 17 through 21. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Gospel of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place and into our hearts. Thank you for the life that you bring to us. Lord, as we listen to your word being taught, Lord, we ask that you would open up our eyes, that we would see Jesus today, that you'd open up our ears, that we'd hear your voice, and that you'd open up our hearts, that we would be changed into your image. We pray these things in your name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we began what will be a a short three-week series called Great Expectations. And last week we talked about how expectations are really wonderful things in some ways. They get us out of bed in the morning because someone's counting on us, because we expect something out of ourselves. They, They can be really wonderful things. But expectations can also be difficult things because when we fail to meet our expectations or fail to meet someone else's expectations of us, the result is very often shame. Shame that we we have the sense that we've fallen short. Now, we, we made the distinction last week that there's some unhealthy versions of shame, but even the sliver of legitimate shame that we might wrestle with, shame that is associated with our own guilt or shortcoming, it can leave us feeling stuck. And so we talked last week about how Jesus comes and his very arrival is about removing our shame, taking away our shame. But the good news is even better than that because if it just stopped there, we'd say, well, thank you, Jesus, for taking away my shame, but this is going to be a rinse and repeat sort of thing because I'm going to just mess up again, right? 
But what Jesus does is more than just take away our shame, he carries the weight of our expectations. We can never be what we were made to be without Jesus. And so Jesus becomes, Christ in you becomes the hope of glory, the glory that we had fallen short of. Well, this morning I want to talk about not failed expectations, but shattered expectations. Shattered expectations, and what I mean by this is when things go horribly wrong, and it's not necessarily your fault or anyone's fault, you just found yourself stuck And you're not quite sure all the things that contributed to it. it. Maybe it was the family you were born in, the kind of home that you had. Maybe it was experiences that happened to you when you were young or in your youth. Maybe it was some mistakes that you made. But whatever the case may be, you find yourself in a spot and you say, well, this isn't what I had expected. This isn't what I had hoped. There there are shattered expectations here. Uh, For example... I had expected for there to be a guest speaker here this morning. And um, last night at about 9.45, he called with a family emergency and had to cancel. And so now you are dealing with shattered expectations of hearing me again for one more uh, week. Uh, Fortunately, the funny thing is I actually have had uh, this a couple of these stories in my heart for the last few weeks. And so when he called, I was actually a little bit excited. I thought, I get to turn to these stories. And then I'm also very thankful, a little plug here for software versions of, of Bible study tools where you have, I have all my, all my commentary libraries in my laptop. So I didn't have to go anywhere, write my PJs by the fire in the Christmas tree, stayed up till midnight. Anyway, so uh, here we go. <laughs> when you think about shattered expectations, there is an image that the Old Testament uses that's really powerful. You heard it from our Old Testament reading this morning, the prophet Isaiah says that there's going to be a green shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. Now, these are phrases that had enormous meaning to them, but pretty much zero meaning to us. We're like, no idea why a green shoot's going to come from a dead tree stump, but okay, right? Who's Jesse? Well, Jesse is the father of David, and David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. In fact, God made David a promise that he was going to build a dynasty through David's house. Through David's lineage, there would be a dynasty, a succession of king after king after king. And why was this important? Did it matter just because they were into royalty and all that stuff? No. See, Israel had this hope that it was going to be through their king that God would be like the king of the world. And they had this hope, this expectation that through their king, peace would come to the world. They had this word that they used, shalom, peace, that was a way of speaking of all being right and all manner, all being well and all manner of things being well, everything being right. And when their king would rule with justice, peace would come to the world. And so when God promised David a dynasty, it was basically a promise of the world being restored. Foreign nations were supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship their God. Justice would flow from this throne of David, except it doesn't quite work out that way. David has some mistakes in his own life. David then has a son named Solomon. Solomon makes all kinds of mistakes, and then one of his sons becomes king, and the kingdom splits. You can't have a dynasty when you don't even have a nation. You can't have a king A succession of kings when the kingdom is breaking apart. 
And this is what happens to Rehoboam. The, the nation splits. There's this northern part called Israel. They keep ten tribes. And then there's, there's this southern part called Judah. They keep two of the tribes of Israel. And things just get worse. The northern guys up north, the northern kingdom, in 722 BC, the Assyrians come and capture them. And the Assyrians are brutal. They don't just take them as slaves. They scatter them. They, they make this race disappear from the world. And then in 583, 584 BC, somewhere around there, which is later because it's BC, kind of confusing, Judah gets taken by the Babylonians and they get taken as slaves. The genealogy we heard this morning, the brief part of the genealogy, the summary of the genealogy, rather, in Matthew's gospel, says there were 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David until the time of deportation to Babylon. Captivity. Exile. The stump of Jesse. See, Jesse was supposed to be the father of the great king who would then have more great kings. It was to be like this great tree. In fact, one of the images the prophets use is that Israel was going to be like this great tree that provided shade to the world. That others would be able to find, other nations were like birds that would find their nest, their resting place in it. And all of a sudden, the, the, Isaiah says, I know, I know what's happened. I know what it feels like. It feels like the whole tree's been cut down and all that's left is a stump that's dead. It's over. The dream has ended. But Isaiah says, no, there's going to be a little green shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. Matthew picks up on this and intentionally tells us how Joseph was a descendant of David. And then he tells us that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about. Now, if we left it there, you'd say, well, isn't that great? We can jump from Isaiah to Jesus. See, well, there's this stump, but there was this promise, and then Jesus showed up. Let's all go get lunch. But the riveting question is how? How does God make a dead tree stump begin to bud and bear fruit again? The answer is through some really unlikely people. If you have your Bible and you turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, you could read the first few verses of Matthew chapter 1. The first few verses of Matthew's Gospel is a genealogy. Now, I know all of you probably already own all the refrigerator magnets of these verses in the Bible. You've been meditating on who begat who and who was the father of who. And this is like your favorite devotional reading, chicken soup for the Christian soul. No, we don't read genealogies. We're usually, okay, blah, 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 blah. Family lineages are usually boring unless it's your own, right? But that's just it. This is the family tree of Abraham, of David, of Jesus. And the funny thing about this genealogy is normally in Jewish genealogies, you, you talked about fathers and sons. It was a very patriarchal, heavy culture, and yet, something different is happening here. In Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, he names four women. Four unlikely women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who's not named as Bathsheba, but as the wife of Uriah. In case you forgot the story of how she got connected with David. By David taking her. Four women, 
with tarnished reputations. Four women who, if we think about their plot and their day in life, their lot in life and their, and their setting in life, four women who were stuck. You see, in our day, we're used to believing in upward mobility. Anybody can change your station in life. It's part of the American dream. If you work hard enough, you can rise. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter uh, who your family is. You can make a name for yourself. You can make a living for yourself. You can do this. But that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. In fact, that's not the case in many parts of the world today. But certainly as you're thinking about these stories, these four women found themselves in very difficult situations that were beyond their control. And they did the best they could with what they had, but the story's not a very clean one. The stories, in fact, are rather messy. We can't do all four of these stories today. In fact, the truth is, each of these women deserve their own sermon series, their own week at the very least. Today, we're going to look at the middle two, Rahab and Ruth. The story of Rahab begins in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. If you're following along, you can turn there. Joshua 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim. You can't make this stuff up, okay? It's there in the Bible. I just got to get it out of the way. There it is. I'm reading it out loud. As spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, right away, there's a couple strikes against Rahab. One is that she's not an Israelite. She's an outsider. She's a pagan. The second is that she's a prostitute. Now, we don't know why or how she came into that place in life, but it's very likely, given the context of the ancient world, that it wasn't her choosing. It's very likely that some situation of poverty or maybe death in the family that had forced her into this sort of life. Furthermore, it's not likely that she was part of the temple cults Because her house was on the city walls. And it's very likely that the spies chose Rahab's house precisely because her house was right there at the wall of the city. It was quick to get into if you're a spy. It's also probably the last place that anybody's going to discover you because you imagine that one only goes to such places under secret cover. What else may or may not have transpired in that house that night, we are not told. But the story is not a very clean and tidy one. So the spies end up staying at Rahab's house. And then she finds out that the king knows about the spies and wants to catch them and is sending soldiers out to find them. And so they say, please, you got to help us. And she says, okay, I'll I'll, I'll cover it for you. I'll, I'll even, she works up this amazing deception to save them. And then as they're about to leave, she goes for it. She takes a risk. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. See, Rahab's just finished saying, I've heard the stories. I know about your God. I know how we're all afraid of him. We know that he is the God. Then she says, if I've dealt kindly with you, would you deal kindly with my father's house? If you're the circling kind, would you circle that word kindly both times it occurs? We're going to come back to it later in the sermon. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, I mean, I imagine, can you imagine a movie made of this, you know? It's like the epic, climactic moment of the movie. The music's kind of building, and she's making her impassioned plea, and the men say, 
our lives for yours, even to death. They're warriors, of course. They've got to talk like that. It says, if you do not tell this business of ours, then, the Lord, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly, circle that word again, and faithfully with you. She goes for it. She makes a request. She says, I've heard about your God. I know he's going to come through for you. And would you make sure that when he comes through for you, that he'll come through for me too? Would you make sure that when he saves you, he'll save me too? God uses Rahab's profession to fulfill a promise. Long ago, God had made a promise to a man called Abraham. said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family and then I'm going to give you a land. And Abraham's descendants began to multiply, but they didn't have a land until this story, this day, this moment. How would God keep his promise to give them a land? Well, he'd work naturally through just the people you'd expect, right? The saints, the churchy types, the religious, squeaky clean, the good people in the world. Or the seedy questionable, shady, Rahab. God uses Rahab's profession to fulfill a promise. Not quite what you'd expect. But the story of Rahab, Rahab's mention in the Bible doesn't end there. Rahab gets mentioned in the New Testament. There's a chapter in the book of Hebrews called the Hall of Faith where all of these heroes are mentioned by faith, Abraham, and by faith, Noah, and by faith. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, these are the greats. And then all of a sudden it says, and by faith, Rahab. Which Rahab? Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, Rahab? How does she get in? on that story. How does she get included in this? Regardless of how women ended up as prostitutes, they were considered to be on the low end of the social standing. And yet when the Bible speaks of Rahab the prostitute, names her, names her, not some woman, a woman, the woman, they met a woman in Jericho, but names her. The dignity of a name. And doesn't just name her, but he claims her, gives her a place in the story. I can't help but think that the four women in the story, in some ways, have something to do with this line of work. Tamar, if you know that story, Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute to continue the family line. Rahab was one. Ruth, you'll see in a moment, acted a little like one. Bathsheba was treated like one. What's the deal here? How does God find a way to name them and to claim them as his own? Ruth. Like Ruth, Glenn, Ruth, we did a Bible study on Ruth. I'm looking for my Boaz right now. You may want to think again. Ruth, Ruth is a Moabite. Now, that, again, means nothing to you and me, just off the top of our heads. Moabite, I have no idea what that means. Moabites, the Bible tells us, the story of their family lineage, Moabites were the descendants of seduction. There's a whole story there about a guy named Lot and his daughters and what they did to produce this people that became the Moabites. And interestingly, every time the Old Testament talks about Moabites, it talks about them in the context of seduction, 
There's a guy named Balaam who's trying to be, who, who, who's not, who's a prophet of Israel, but it's Moabites who are trying to seduce Balaam to prophesy curses, and he won't do it. In Numbers chapter 25, Moabite women are accused of seducing Israel to worship false gods. Moabite was a slang word for seducer. So when the Bible tells us that Ruth was a Moabite, you're already thinking, oh, what? And the story gets better. See, it actually begins with her mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi, who was married to a guy named Elimelech, and they lived in a town called Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread, except when there wasn't any more bread. There was a famine in Bethlehem. And so Naomi and Elimelech move out of Bethlehem into the area, the country of Moab. Something terrible happens. Naomi's husband dies. They have their two sons, and these boys find Moabite women, a woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. And then the two sons die. And so Naomi's left with these two daughter-in-laws who are not from her family line, who don't belong in the promise of Israel. And she's in a strange place. And so Naomi says, life stinks. I'm going to go home now. And she decides to go home. And Orpah says, go ahead. I'm going to stay here. This is where I belong. And Naomi says, totally. Now, Ruth, you're going to stay too? And Ruth says, no. No, I'm going with you. In fact, where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And Ruth goes with Naomi into this strange land, and she begins working the fields. Now, this is something that is, I've always thought was interesting for business owners in the congregation. We prayed for you this morning. There was an Old Testament law that said if you own fields, not to harvest it 100%. Leave the edges of it so that the poor and the immigrant could come and, and, and eat and pluck grain. Might there be some resonances today? In a world that says, squeeze every ounce of profit and don't you give any away to anyone who's needy. The Old Testament had this law that said, make room for the stranger, for the immigrant, for someone who's stuck. And so Ruth benefits from this kind of kindness and she's working the fields and she meets a guy named Boaz and Boaz owns the fields and Boaz ends up being nice to her and says, look, go ahead, you'll work these fields and I'll keep all of the men from heckling you. Don't worry, I'll keep you safe. And Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law and tells her the story of meeting Boaz and what he's done for her. And she says, wait a minute, I know this guy. Ruth chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Meaning refreshing the answer you've been hoping for, that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose, with whose young woman you were? You see, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. This is the Old Testament equivalent of take a shower, put some perfume on, and wear a nice dress. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I don't know what kinds of sermons you've heard about the story of Ruth. And I'm, not certain, I'm certainly not trying to be inappropriate in any way. But I must tell you that all of the commentaries mention it, that feet in the Old Testament is a euphemism for something else, the reproductive bits of a man. And what Ruth 
may or may not be doing here is ambiguous. We don't really know. But the storyteller leaves it a little ambiguous precisely to be provocative. This is a provocative story. And later when she does this, and Boaz is startled, understandably, and says, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. Hebrew, I took two years of Hebrew in my undergrad. Hebrew is a picture-laden language, full of idioms and expression. Spread your wings could easily be translated, spread the edges of your garment over me. It's a picture-language way of saying, make me yours. Commit your love to me. Take me as your responsibility, as your wife. Now, I say this not to make you all of a sudden cast aspersions on Ruth, but to help you see that this is a risky act that is not anything like a proposition, but is certainly like a proposal, and a rather provocative proposal. This isn't sweet little churchy Ruth. This is Ruth who's desperate to survive and is willing to do something bold and risky. And so he says to her in verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. There's that word kindness again. Circle that word. Greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. See, there was this custom in the Old Testament that said that if a, woman, husband's, if a woman's husband had died, the closest family kin had to redeem her, had to take her on as part of his responsibility. And he says, I am a redeemer, and yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's a closer family member than me. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. God used Ruth's desperation to launch a dynasty. God used Ruth's desperate act to launch a dynasty. Why? Because Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. Now, this may be uncomfortable for some of us because the Bible is full of saintly stories. Clint, in church, my goodness. I'm trying to help you see that these stories in the Old Testament aren't prescriptive stories about how to live. There's nothing prescriptive here to say, therefore, go and do likewise, like Ruth. <laughs> Be terrible dating advice. <laughs> it, it's a, you know, it's so, and you can tell how far we are from the grit and mess of Bible stories because we've sanitized it so much. I'm looking for my Boaz. My point in showing you the grit of these stories is to show you how amazing God's grace really is. Because if you think that God only works with churchy, nice, clean, cleaned up people, then you're stuck. I'm stuck. We're stuck with a stump, a dead tree trunk that's never going to produce fruit again. But if it's true that God does meet us in the strangest of places and in the unlikeliest of ways to rescue us and show us kindness, then this is really good news. So I don't want to clean up the stories. I want you to see the mess and 
uncomfortableness of it so that you can see the remarkable grace of God. There's a word. There's a word that the Hebrews would use to speak of God's love. It's a word that can't be really captured very well in English. It's a word that is often translated loving kindness, sometimes covenantal love, sometimes in more, you know, longer versions, you'd say a never giving up, always faithful covenant kind of love. Yeah, 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 yeah. That Hebrew word is the word hesed. Hesed is a remarkable word because there's just no parallel for it. A a tenacious and loyal love. Remember I had you circle the word kindness in the Rahab story? Do you know why? It's because that word is really hesed. That Rahab says to the spies, I have shown you loving kindness. Would you show me loving kindness? And And the spies say to her, my life for yours, even to death, the Lord will show loving kindness has said to you. Ruth, the word that Boaz says to her, he says, your kindness is better than before. Your hesed, your loving kindness. You know what I think? I think somehow in these dark places of history, these messy, destitute, grimy spots of life, Here are two women that are showing the brightest spots they know how, showing just a little bit of kindness. And God says, I recognize that. That kind of love is my kind of love. That kind of kindness is my kind of kindness. Now, do you want to see what it really looks like? Do you want to see hesed in all of its glory? Do you want to see my kindness unrestrained? Do you want to see what my tender mercy can really do? I'll rescue you. See, God's loving kindness shows up in surprising places and in surprising ways. God's loving kindness shows up in surprising places and in surprising ways. These are people that are just doing the best they can with what they've got. But when is that ever enough in life? When is it ever enough? It's, hey, man, I'm just doing the best I can with what I've got. Cool. But is that really ever enough? You know when it's enough? When the grace of God shows up. When the grace of God shows up. Jesus said all it takes is faith like a mustard seed. Tiny, itty-bitty, almost negligible kind of faith. Here's Rahab saying to the spies, I've heard the stories. I'm pretty sure your God is the real God. And somewhere Yahweh is saying, there it is, mustard seed faith. Now here comes my kindness. And there's Ruth saying, I don't really know what I'm doing. This seems so foolish and risky. And And God says, and this is enough. And Jesus is looking (laughs) for that little itty-bitty faith. God, I'm stuck. I don't have anything left to give. But I just got this little tiny bit of saying yes, God, to you. You know what I think is so amazing is this story, these, story, these four women that are in the genealogy of Jesus. You know why I think Matthew did it? Why I include Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uriah. Why? 
Because in a few more lines, he's about to tell us the story of Mary. Mary, another woman that people were questioning. Mary, another woman whose reputation was about to be tarnished. So tarnished that Joseph, the descendant of David, was about to quietly put her away. And Matthew's telling us these names of these women as if to remind the reader, look, you're about to hear a story that sounds unlikely, to say the least. That sounds improbable. What? The Messiah with the girl? What? No. She pregnant with the Messiah by the Holy Spirit? How is that even possible? No way. And it's Matthew's way of saying, isn't it just like God, though? Isn't it just like God? Why not? Through a virgin and in a manger. Didn't he somehow work through Tamar's messy decisions? Didn't he somehow work through Rahab's tainted profession? Didn't he somehow work through Rahab, uh, Ruth's provocative proposal? Didn't he somehow work through Bathsheba's victimization? Why not? Why not? Isn't this what God does? God's loving kindness shows up in surprising places and in surprising ways. It's like God says to Rahab, it's not about your profession, but my provision. And I can hear through the words of the spies, through the voice of the spies, it's really the voice of God saying, my life for yours, even unto death. And it's like God is saying to Ruth, it's not about your commitment, but my unfailing love. And somehow through Boaz's words, you can hear Yahweh himself saying, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. I couldn't help but think about this last night, that the spies and Boaz in some strange way prefigure Jesus and his own death and resurrection. That Jesus on the cross looks out at all of us stuck in our sin, stuck like the end of a dead stump, cut off. And Jesus says, my life for yours, even unto death. And on the third day when he's raised up, Jesus, the risen Christ, speaks to his disciples and said, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. By his death and by his resurrection, we're rescued. We're redeemed. And so it is that God says to you, wherever you are, I will meet you there. Whatever dead and lifeless stump is in your life, it doesn't need to be the end. He says this to us through Jesus. Amen?